And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning. It's Wednesday. It's hump day. It's also inflation day. That's right. This morning, we're going to get the March report on inflation. Why has this become such an important thing? Well, because it has everything to do with the Fed. What's the Federal Reserve going to do now because of inflation at such and such a level? This morning, markets are set up to move fairly big in one direction or the other, depending on how this inflation print comes out. If we come out with a fairly weak inflation number this morning, something in the fours, uh, potentially, in that very low 5%, uh, uh, inflation rate or even in the fours, like 4.9% inflation rate on a year-over-year basis. Markets set up to basically jump about 1% to 2% today because there's a very heavy position of shorts sitting underneath this market right now. So they would be forced to cover on a very weak inflation. Why would a weak inflation print? Well, remember, the Federal Reserve has said once they can see inflation trending towards their 2% level, that that is the point where they will feel like they've accomplished their goals and they'll stop hiking rates. Now, again, that doesn't mean they're going to cut rates, but from the market perspective, them stopping hiking rates, well, that's just good enough, right? And that means that future monetary accommodation is coming and that's good for stocks and that'll push stock prices higher. A very hot print this morning, and there's certainly some considerations to suggest that inflation could be hotter than expected today. But something that's closer to that 6% handle on CPI on a year-over-year basis um, is going to probably send the market fairly lower, 1% to 2% lower. And that's, again, just because of, well, that would suggest that the Federal Reserve has not done hiking rates yet, that one more rate hike may not be enough, and particularly with the employment data that we've seen recently, which still remains fairly robust, that would certainly give the markets concern over a, a, a continued aggressiveness by the Federal Reserve as it relates to hiking interest rates and tightening monetary policy. So today's number is fairly important from that standpoint, and we could see some uh, pickup in volatility in one direction or the other. Now, yesterday, uh, markets did recover most of that early morning sell-off. In fact, almost got back to break-even yesterday. And again, we've seen this repeatedly in the markets as of late, which is the markets open down and then recover during the day. That's actually a decently bullish signal. That means buyers are there. Uh, When sellers come in, buyers are there to meet them. And then we start out lower and the market rallies back the rest of the day. That's a fairly bullish signal for the market suggests that, again, buyers are there and that the bias of the market is higher. And again, if we take a look at a lot of our moving averages, the 20-day, the 50-day moving average, those are all starting to trend higher now as well. That's also a, a signal that pretends to a more bullish outcome for markets over the near term. And we're going to talk some more about that this morning. Interesting conversation uh, with a gentleman yesterday talking about a disagreement of views, right? how our views don't align with his views. And and that's a very interesting conversation for where we are right now within the markets. And so we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. Danny Ratliff will be joining me uh, here this morning. We'll we'll get into that. But again, in the near term, 
Markets are doing okay. Bullish, uh, bullishness is, is certainly in the position right now. Um, the MACD buy signal still on positive buy signal, but beginning to narrow. And again, we've had a decent rally since that signal was put into place that we talked about three weeks ago. We've had this very decent rally in the markets. And again, we're getting probably towards the upper end of that rally, at least in the near term. So again, this is why we started talking about taking profits earlier this week and, and reducing some exposure just a tad. And that's just a function that we've had a nice rally here. That signal that we got that told us to buy the market is, is basically getting towards the end of that, of that gain. So again, we'll probably go through another cycle period here where we get a little bit weaker prices. That's just the way the markets work and it could potentially start today. We'll see, uh, depending on what happens with the CPI number. As I said, there's certainly reasons to expect that CPI could come in hotter than expected. Used car prices have been on the rise. Oil prices have been on the rise. Now, the thing with oil prices, it takes about three months. Um, they run about a three month lag showing up in inflation. Uh, it's been about two months since oil prices have been rising again, but oil prices rising. We've seen it at the pump. Uh, that's been reflected in obviously prices at, you know, for food and other things in, in the economy that do translate on a more rapid basis into inflation. So there's certainly some concern here this morning that inflation could be higher than expected. But again, um, it's just all based on the calculation uh, and really as what's happening with housing, which runs on a big lag coming into inflation, those numbers have been coming down. So, and again, since inflation, uh, so sorry, since housing, homeowners equivalent rent makes up such a large portion of the CPI calculation, that effect could outweigh some of the price increases that we've seen in used car prices, oil prices, et cetera. So uh, again, there's certainly some concern of, of a stronger than an expected inflation print, but we really won't know that until we get the report this morning. That comes out at 7.30 a.m. Central Time here. So uh, by the time that we get before the bell posted up, the CPI report will already be out um, and we'll be looking at the market from that point. Uh, futures are pointing higher this morning. The Dow's up about 80 points. The S&P's up five. Everything's just kind of sitting here in limbo at the moment. Everybody, again, kind of waiting on the CPI report. Very quickly, just a couple of other things that are, that are kind of interesting. Uh, gold has been on a very, very big move here lately, and we've talked about this a, a bit as of late. Um, gold had a very big advance. We'd come down to about $1,800 an ounce on gold, rallied to about $2,000. Um, this is a very overbought condition now for gold prices. So again, if you're trading the metals, may want to look at taking a little bit of profit there um, as well, just because again, like everything in the commodities market, they ebb and flow. They just don't go straight up. So again, you've had a very nice move in gold here. Like the markets, probably want to take a bit of profits. In fact, there's been a fairly decent correlation between equity risk on and gold prices. And, and so again, you've had a very nice move here. Think about taking some profits in that oil prices, of course, is something that, uh, again, as we've talked about lately, you had that uh, OPEC plus production cut that gave a little bit of lift here um, in one day for oil prices, but they've been pretty stagnant since then. And uh, again, oil prices very, very overbought here. So we've had a very big move in oil prices, went from 64 to 81 ish and oil prices are kind of hanging right there around that 81 82 dollar level right now but again oil prices have gotten very very overbought so as we've been talking about before you know markets tend to move together in a lot of different cases 
a lot of these areas of the market have gotten very extended again. One of those in particular, and, and again, this is why we took some profits in the NASDAQ earlier this week. NASDAQ's extremely overbought. 10 stocks have made up 90% of the advance since the beginning of the year. They're all NASDAQ related stocks, which is why there's been such a very accelerated move in the NASDAQ since those October lows in particular. But we are about to register a sell signal on the NASDAQ as well. Again, uh, this suggests that over the course of the next month or so, that and particularly as we start to move into summer, we could see another bout of weakness in the overall markets. Again, that's just the ebb and flow of the markets. Markets just don't go straight up. They don't go straight down. So again, when you get these rallies, they get pretty overbought in areas. Think about taking a little money off the table. Now, that doesn't mean sell everything. Um, people often email me, like, well, I sold everything when you said to sell. I said, no, I said, take some profits, <laughs> you know, sell a little bit, put some money in the bank. And then when that asset price pulls back, whatever it is, you can always buy some more. So again, just, just manage the risk in your portfolio. It's always important. Okay. Lots of stuff to talk about this morning with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. He'll be right up right after the break. Also get by our website. Our latest report is on the website at Real Investment Advice talking about there's not, there's bullishness is still missing in the markets. And that's actually a good thing. Be right back after the break. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. What's new with Social Security this year? Our next Lunch and Learn will reveal seven things to watch in 2023. Thursday, April 13th at noon, Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff will share Social Security claiming strategies, the 2023 COLA, and earnings tests. Our What's New with Social Security this year Lunch and Learn with Ratliff and Rosso, April 13th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. Danny Ratliff joining me. Got a couple of things I, I want to talk about this morning uh, in particular. Um, one is a conversation that Danny had yesterday with a gentleman. And I, I thought this, uh, and Danny called me last night and kind of walked me through the conversation a bit and we discussed it. But then after I hung up with Danny and got to thinking about it more, it actually, you know, gave me a, a, a kind of an interesting point of view. I think it's interesting. You may not think it's interesting, but I think it's interesting um, about relationships with advisors. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've often stated is that you need to make sure that your advisor has the same, you know, philosophy as you do. And I think that's an important thing. If you're going to have an advisor, you need to have an advisor that has a, a similar philosophy. And, and I mean, from what I mean by that is, is not the same view the same philosophy. Now, though, it sounds like the same thing, right? But it's not. And let me explain why. So when I say the same philosophy, in other words, if you're a very aggressive investor, as an example, and you're trying to generate 15% of your you know, returns on your portfolio and, and you trade you know, block options, those type of things, well, you need to find an advisor that does that, right? You, you don't want to hire an advisor that is very conservative and you know runs a stock bond portfolio because the 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 philosophy of the portfolio doesn't match right 
you're you're asking for a Formula One race car and you just hired a mechanic that drives a 1937, you know, tea bucket. <laughs> so, you know, you need to have the same type of, of car if you're going to run the same type of race. That's what I mean by philosophy. Views are a different thing. And we had a good conversation about this yesterday. I just wrote an article. It's on the website. It's talking about bullishness is still missing in the markets. But one of the, the, the one of the points I make in that article is that Star Wars was wrong about this idea of search your feelings and you know you know feel you know what do you feel that's that's what should dictate your actions and I, I put this chart up uh, in that article because one of the the philosophies hold on a second Brent you have to leave it there for a second that's fine you can leave it I'm just going to explain what the chart says though. You're just jumping the gun over here this morning. Too much coffee? Too much little black rifle this morning? Not enough. Got enough. Um, but part of what I'm talking about in that article is about one of the philosophies about buy and hold investing. And the attitude is, is well, if you just buy and hold, you'll get the market returns over time. And since markets average, you know, X percent a year, you're going to have this compounded rate of growth. And so I showed you this chart, which was the Dow Jones going back to 1900. And if the Dow compounded at 5% annually, as everybody tells you in the media, the Dow would be around 860,000, not 35,000. And the difference is, is those years of loss of money where markets don't compound. Markets do not compound, period, end of story, ever. So when somebody tells you that, just... Show them this chart <laughs> because markets don't compound. It's important to understand the risk of loss and what that means. Now, this comes back to views. Part of that conversation that we had yesterday was about psychology and this idea of hurting and, and you know, <laughs> confirmation bias, etc. Those Those attitudes are what cause us to lose money over time because we start ignoring other things in the markets. Now, this comes. Now, what does this have to do with, with the conversation that Danny and I had yesterday? So, Danny called me, and do you want to do you want to tell me the conversation again so I get it right, or you just want me to recap it real quick? Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead. Okay, go ahead. So, just just in general, game, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, just in general, the conversation was. Person was upset because our views were different. Well, not, not necessarily upset, but said, hey, you know what? I'm not sure our views align so much anymore. And I said, well, well, okay, tell me about it. Walk me through this. And basically he came back and said, well, Lance seems a lot more bullish right now. And we don't feel that way. We, we're extremely bearish. I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of in the bunker, so to speak. And we're just not sure philosophies align. And so I said, okay, well, well, let's talk about this a little bit. Because our philosophy hasn't changed, and our philosophy is different than most. Because number one, we're not your typical buy and hold firm, where we're not going to just set it and forget it and tell you guys, hey, don't worry about it. Look at the chart. It always goes up. And, and that's an interesting conversation we can have with the compounding, too, later. You know, Because I hear about the rule of 72, and we can talk about why that doesn't work when we're talking about markets. That's only with fixed rates of return. But more or less, the, the story or conversation was essentially... Um, Hey, I just think you guys are, are we're, we're on different paths here. You guys are bullish. We're not. Right. And this is the important part of the conversation. So philosophy, as we were talking about a second ago, philosophy is principal conservation and growth of capital over time. That's our philosophy. So if you're looking for a philosophy that says, look, I'm looking for somebody that can protect my capital, but make it grow over time. 
we're your guy. Now, the difference, though, is views. And this is why I'm saying views and philosophy are two different things. And you don't necessarily want an advisor that has the same view as you all the time because of what I was just talking about, confirmation bias. And in this example, once you get in the bunker, all you look for are the things that say everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket. And maybe that's the case. But in the meantime, the markets can do things that are totally different than what you think, right? Markets have been going up since October, but yet everything is terrible. We're going to have a recession. Um, you know, all the economic data, the data, data says so. The Fed's hiking interest rates. Inflation is high. You know, why is the market going up? Because the market does things that we don't always expect. That's how markets work. And so you need an advisor that doesn't necessarily agree with you because if everybody's agreeing with everybody, we run the risk of missing what's going on in the markets. And this is why a lot of investors lose a lot of money during markets is because they get an advisor that's super bullish. Oh, let's buy and hold. And we'll just, you know, we're just going to put money into ETFs and, and you're just going to keep putting money in there. And we're just going to ride this market higher. And that's great as long as markets are going up. But what happens when markets don't go up? And this is, this is why it's not always a good idea to have an advisor that will just agree with whatever you say. Well, I think the other aspect is that many times they're expecting to bet the house on one specific type of investment or investment theme, and that theme never changes. And so I think that's where it becomes problematic. And we yeah. also have to remember, where do we get our information from? I think this is really important because so many times you look on social media, you get in different places. We're, we're in a vacuum. And, you know, when you're searching one type of information, that's historically what you're going to be receiving back. <laughs> that's the way the algorithms work, right? Correct. And so that's where we have to be really cautious. And so, you know, one thing I always like to explain, and our logo is an eagle. And the reason it's an eagle is because we, don't, we want to remain and kind of soar above the bulls and the bears. And even though Lance and I may, or, or all of us on the investment committee or whoever it may be, may feel one specific way and try to rationalize something, Many times we have to step out of our own way and understand the technicals and what's going on with the markets and the dynamics. Say, you know what, indicators suggest we need to reduce risk or increase it. And I think that's the really important part is to understand, okay, what is the process? What's the discipline to keep you in line, to keep you honest, and to take that emotion out of it? Because so many times, Lance, it's so mm -hmm. easy to get emotional and we want to rationalize things that just can't be rationalized sometimes. Yeah, no, I agree. It was just interesting on Twitter. Uh, just yesterday, I had a, a, I put out a tweet. And every day on Twitter, if you want to follow me on Twitter, at Lance Roberts, um, you know, we I post charts, both bullish and bearish, every day. And, and that's kind of me doing my own non-confirmation bias. I try to find some bullish stuff. I try to find some bearish stuff. And I put them both out there. And it was interesting because I put a chart up that was fairly bearish yesterday. One, one of the charts I put up was bearish. And it says, hey, you know, this data, this this piece of data has always suggested that we wind up in a recession at some point. And so somebody, you know, tweeted me back and says, oh, you're just talking your book because you're bearish. And I'm like, did you not read any of the other tweets eh, that went before this? <laughs> but I said, this is the problem with confirmation bias. And you're suffering from that because you're only looking for bullish outcomes. And, and, and I said, so, so my tweet was specifically, you're suffering from confirmation bias. You should evaluate other, other things. The tweet coming back was, well, how do you know I'm suffering from confirmation bias? <laughs> well, because of your tweet. <laughs> 
you know, and this is and this is where's the thing. your psychology degree? Right, 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 right. So you know, so this is, but from an investment standpoint, this is the things that we have to battle. And, this, and the, the whole point of this conversation is this: is that you know there is philosophy and there are views. Views are emotional. Philosophy is a discipline. So you have to separate the two and determine what is it that you're actually searching for. So whoever uses your advisor, just make sure the philosophy is aligned with yours. And that has a lot to do with portfolio allocation, portfolio management, those type of things. That's the investment philosophy. The views, that's emotional. And that's okay if y'all disagree on views. Just make sure that if your advisor says, I disagree with your view, say, show me. Why? Show me the show me the reasons why you disagree with my view. Convince me that my view is wrong. And I may not be able to convince you entirely that your view is wrong. There's some views that we're just going to hold as that's just what, what I believe. and I'm not going to change my mind. Yeah, right? but I think you want somebody who shares different types of opinions, Correct. different views, because that's going to make make your portfolio all that much more round and, and holistic right. in how we look at things. And I think that it's important to share these views. And I encourage my clients, hey, we we're not on the same page or you don't understand what we're doing, call. We want to discuss that and, and make sure that you guys have a really good understanding of why we're doing something. And which is why we communicate the way we do. We send out lots of information via email. Uh, but I think it's really, really important, like you said, Lance, to make sure that we separate. Okay, I think this is going to happen. Great, it may, but when? How? Right. And, and the other aspect is, how many people have been out of the market because of their views? Or all in, and then they get burned one way or the other. Right. No, it's true. All right. Quick little diatribe. We're done. We'll be back after the break talking about housing is now so unaffordable that even banks are losing money. What? Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show this morning i'm your son trevor standing right up joining me so just for the break just talking a little bit about the difference between views and philosophy and there's a good example of this by the way Danny will tell you this, you know, philosophy of running your household, you know, you and your spouse are on the same page about spending money and all that. Try to change your wife's view about something. <laughs> oh, good Lord knows that's not happening. <laughs> Just agree to agree. There you go. Um, interesting thing going on. Uh, two things real quick. We're, uh, while we're on the break, uh, Warren Buffett's on CNBC right now, and he said something very interesting and which is important. A lot of concerns about banks here lately. It's like, oh my gosh, banks are failing and you know, small banks are, are in trouble, all this. And a lot of concern about, you know, FDIC limits and all these type of things on on different accounts. And and it was interesting he made the comment. He says the FDIC is funded by the banks, it's not funded by um, the government. And that's not exactly a correct statement. FDIC is funded by depositors. 
because that's where the money comes from that the banks pay into FDIC. Same thing with SIPC, which is the Securities Investors Protection Corporation, which is what you have on your investment account. That is funded by investors, individuals. So, you know, really at the end of the day, both FDIC and SIPC are funded by taxpayers at the end of the day. It's just where the money comes from. Because again, when you get your statement, your, your transaction report um, on a buy or sell of a security, you'll see a little, you know, a little SEC fee over there on the side, like two cents or whatever it is. And that's what goes into SIPC insurance. So, it, it, so at the end of the day, it's not the banks that are funding FDIC. It's technically coming from the fees you pay for all the different things. And in, in a roundabout way, though, yeah, it's yeah. coming from the banks. Yeah, yeah. That are, the, the banks write the check. Yeah. Right? But, but it's coming from you and I and every other yeah. everyone else who's depositing money. That's right. Yeah. And that's why that spread between, you know, the four and a half percent in money markets that you can get in a money market fund at Fidelity versus the 0.01% interest you get at <laughs> JP Morgan. That <laughs> helps fund FDIC as well. Uh, anyway, uh, housing. Uh, kind of an interesting headline this morning. It was on uh, Yahoo Finance, and um, Danny popped it up, and it was, it was kind of an interesting piece talking about housing is so unaffordable that banks are losing money for each mortgage they finance for the first time ever. Um, you know, we talk about housing prices and housing affordability and, and et cetera, and what's interesting is that, you know, housing is very location-specific, and we're seeing a lot of big house. You know, there's been a lot of podcasts out lately, a um, lot of headlines talking about the housing market crash and all this. It's very specific to, to, to certain areas. Places that had big run-ups in home prices like California, those are having big price declines. Other areas aren't. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's important, you know, to remember that location, location, location when it comes to real estate is, is very important to the outcome. So again, if you're, if you're, Looking at a you know buying a house or wanting to buy a house in some specific area, I get lots of emails. It's like Lance, have we, have we gone through enough of the housing correction? Now? I really want to go buy a house. You have to look at where you're trying to buy the house and look at the history of housing prices in that area. And what you'll find is that there's some areas where prices literally don't go down, and it's because they're landlocked or there's a specific specific geographical thing going on in that area. Um, you know, right here in Houston, as an example, there's little pockets of housing here and there in the city of Houston where prices really don't decline because the school district is outside of HISD, which is the Houston Independent School District, which is terrible. And there's other school districts that are a lot better. So people want to be in those school districts um, or there's just a specific area where you can't build any more houses but people want to live there for convenience or for shopping or whatever it is those prices don't go down so if you're looking to buy a house in that area as an example you're probably not going to get a lot of big price decline so again it's just always remember location 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 but i thought it was interesting though danny this article about the unaffordability of houses and how banks are losing money on it what did you take away from it well, I think it's interesting. It said that on average, they're losing $301 for every mortgage that they they offer or issue. And I think that, you know, when we look at what's actually happening in the industry and all the bloated fees that are continuously inflating mm -hmm. everything that's going on with the cost of actually doing a mortgage, it's probably becoming problematic in that that aspect. Because when we, we look at it, it's like you said, location, location, location. And I get the same questions like, when should we buy? Man, I mean... 
do you have to buy or do you want to buy? That's a big right, question. Right. Um, but then it's it's also where where do you need to be and where do you want to be? And so, you know, I think the bigger part of this is that how expensive it's become just for the underwriting, the appraisal fees, everything else that goes into this. Now, granted, that's not going to be the the main driver, but when you start adding all of these up, it is becoming more and more expensive for for anybody to go purchase a home. Right. Well, you know, we talked about this too. You know, a lot of uh, millennials ran out and bought houses during the twenty, you know, during the pandemic shutdown yeah. because they got a check, right? It was fifteen hundred dollars down. Uh, just talked about yesterday on Twitter. I posted an article out in California. They were offering no money down houses, right? So, so for lower to middle income homes, and it was they said lower to middle income, up to two hundred and forty thousand dollars a year in income, you could get a zero money down loan. Um, we've seen that how that worked out previously. <laughs> in 2008 so i'm curious to see how how this works out for them but you know it's california so there you go um but the point is is that you know a lot of uh, individuals ran out and they bought houses and nobody warned them about property insurance flood insurance homeowners association dues all property these other taxes, property yeah. taxes and and this is you know property taxes in texas as an example yes you know a lot of people go oh moving to texas they don't have a state income tax hold your horses for a second we have property taxes, and they ain't cheap. Now, there is some legislation trying to get passed through in Texas right now where they're going to try to reform the property taxes uh, in the state, which hopefully uh, our Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick can get that kind of pushed through because property tax reform has been a big issue for years. It's been unable to get changed and reformed to any great degree yet, but there's problems with it because it just appreciates at 8% a year. So it gets... <laughs> you know, property taxes are becoming a big chunk of the the cost of home ownership every year. And for a lot of people that don't understand that, when they go to buy a house, they go, "Oh, I bought this house; it's great. I owe how much in taxes?" <laughs> oh yeah, go, don't open your assessments <laughs> yeah. because uh, down here they're going way up. Exactly. So, and so this is this is you know part and parcel of the of the home ownership process. And yes. You know, pri- you know, we often equate home affordability to the price of the house versus the mortgage you've got to take out. So we say, well, homes aren't affordable because the average person makes $55,000 a year and the, the mortgage should be 20% of their income, which is crazy um, that you're having your mortgage 20% of your income. But because of, of what's happening with interest rates and things, we're now starting to see the average mortgage getting above that 20% mark. So everybody goes, oh, well, they're unaffordable. Well, the rules actually, this should be 20. It's, the rule is 28%, 35% yeah, with everything all together. Yeah. And what we're finding now, new studies are showing that people are going up to like 45%. It's crazy. And at some point, they're going to stop lending and stop doing this. But, you know, you mentioned millennials and, and Gen Zers who are going out and purchasing homes during the pandemic and even prior. I've talked to many of them who are like, man, how am I going to go put a down payment down number one on a 300 something thousand dollar starter home that I think I'm only going to be in for a short period of time. We start having kids likely want to upgrade. And you know, the average time somebody spends in a home is seven years. Right. So when you start doing the math, you're just beginning to pay off that, you know, some principal, right? Because we're paying, you know, remember it's front loaded. Everything that you're paying initially is going to be the interest. And so you find that sometimes they're upside down because they didn't put much down. They're not paying much interest off. Homes didn't, maybe they didn't appreciate as much because they're buying at very expensive prices. And then it just, uh, you know, it's a snowball effect. Right. But that's, you know, when we go back, this is, we had that conversation here on the show, you know, a month or so ago talking about the importance of why you should put 20% down on a house. Because 
when you put 20% down a house, immediately when you start your mortgage, you're already starting to pay some principal, right? So, you know, the problem is, is to Danny's point, is that so many people are trying to go into a house for 3% down or 5% down. You're backloaded on this. And, and again, we see this with cars, right? I mean, all these people are going out and they were buying, you know, used cars and things and, and then winding up when they want to trade it in. They've got this massive chunk of negative equity that they have to roll over into the new car. And, and that just and you keep dragging this negative equity with you. These are just bad financial decisions. And, and again, you know, we also have to, to talk about, you know, Danny just made a good point, right? I've got to buy a $300,000 starter home. Do you really need a $300,000 house as a starter home? Right? That's, that's the next question. And because there are houses that are cheaper than that. They're not, you know, they don't have a pool in the backyard and they don't have, you know, fancy landscaping and, you know, crown molding. But there are probably cheaper. have an iron door on your <laughs> front door. But Maybe. I mean, but there are cheap, there are cheaper houses out there. Uh, but again, you know, we have expectations, right? We have our wants versus our needs. And, and this is also part of the financial process of all this. And right, you know, saving up to 20% down payment. Why is that important? Because as we said before, that ensures that if you can save up 20% to start with, that ensures you've got enough cash flow to afford the house once you're into it. That's the, that's the real reason. It's not just saying you need to put 20% down on the house. It's also proving that you have the ability to have the excess cash flow to afford all the things that come along with a house, the maintenance, the upkeep, the, the things that break down, the insurance costs, the homeowner's dues, uh, rising property taxes every year, and to make sure that you don't wind, get yourself you know, upside down in the problem that you then have to try to extract yourself out from. So anyway, quick break, we'll come back. Gen Z and millennials, they are so broke. How broke are they? We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com welcome back to the show yesterday i touched on this uh you know this fact about how markets work over time and I showed you that chart just a few minutes ago. Um, here, I'll just bring it up just for a, just a quick refresher here. Um, I showed you this chart yesterday about how markets really work, and they don't compound over time. And, and the reason this is important is because a lot of individuals, they have this expectation that markets are just going to bail them out of stuff. I'm going to put $1,000 in the market, and it's going to compound at such and such a rate, and I'll be fine when I get ready for retirement. And markets don't work that way. But we do a lot of this in society where we have taught people to have expectations about things in the future that really don't turn out to be that case. And we've also adopted this attitude, and, and this was part of the conversation yesterday, that after three major bull markets, 
80% of Americans don't have $500 in the bank. And there's just survey after survey. And I went through three of them yesterday um, talking about you know how underfunded people are on average relative to where they should be at their age of retirement. But one of those articles was a different survey than one we're about to talk about, but it's very similar. And what was interesting is the surveys are exactly similar, is that Gen X and baby boomers have been sacrificing their retirements to bail out kids, the Gen X and, and, and millennial kids. And or sorry, Gen Z and millennials, kids. And, you know, they get into financial trouble and the parents are, are bailing them out of one thing after another. And it's interesting because we're, we this has been a problem that has been in, in increasing ever since the 80s. Boomers are not big on bailing out kids. They're pretty much, <laughs> you know, you're on your own for the most part. Very small. There, there's a very small percentage of boomers that will bail out their kids. Much bigger percentage of Gen Xers will bail out their kids. But, you know, that's becoming a bigger and bigger thing going further. And we're talked about multi-generational families now having to live together because the parents can't afford to retire. The kids are having to support their, their children, but they can't afford to support them. So they're all starting to live together in houses to try to just make ends meet, right? And and this is kind of a sad state of affairs that we've gotten ourselves into the situation, but it's been due to years of living beyond our means, having this YOLO attitude that, you know, you've got to have everything today. You've got to have a bigger house than you really need. And, you know, all these changes of, you know, of, of how we view the average lifestyle and the things that we need to have and the things that we must own and, and trying to keep up with the Joneses. But it's interesting, Danny, because, you know, again, I touched on this yesterday and then there was this article, a very similar article on um, Yahoo Finance from a bank rate report saying pretty much the same thing, that Gen Z and millennials are so broke they're ruining their parents' retirements. Yeah. So, you know, I think some of the, the interesting surveys, and this is something I think is important. I wanted to bring this up because doing financial plans, visiting with people on a day-to-day -day basis, this is a problem. It's a significant problem. And what, what we see is that many people are foregoing or they're, you know, they're, they're taking away from their own retirement and people who are retired right now to help their children. And at some point, you have to let them stand on their own two feet. I mean, this is, this is such an issue within the financial plans that we look at where, okay, hey, Lance, it's time to cut it off, you know. You've, you've done a great <laughs> job, you've saved, you've done everything right, but you know, you're helping you know, Billy way too much. Mm -hmm. And the problem begins, okay, okay, yeah, I got it. This, you know, no more, I, I understand. And then it continues to happen, continues to happen. And I'm talking about years. And then you start saying, listen, this is, it's not attainable anymore. You can't continue to do this and continue your lifestyle. Well, what do you mean? Okay, this is going to be it. And so, you know, this, this survey here I thought was really important because, it, look, nearly 7 in 10 parents with children 18 or older have made at least one financial sacrifice to help out their kids. Look, it's natural. I know you want to help your children. Mine are younger. I haven't got to that point where, you know, I'm helping them now, but uh, I continue to tell myself that it won't happen in the future. And I'm sure there's going to be times I'm going to have to come and pony up for something. But you need to make sure that you understand the rules that you have within your home and what you can actually afford and do because – Guess what? If you're retired, you're 65, 70, 80, you're probably not going back to work. Getting a loan is going to be a little bit more difficult. Do you want a loan? Do you need one? So you need to put this in perspective. 
Now, most common financial hit was emergency savings. Over half say they've dipped in their savings to help their adult children, one in five making significant sacrifices. They're paying down debt. They're putting down down payments for homes. Uh, they're bailing them out of whatever it may, may be. Two in five parents reported a significant expense to their retirement savings and then also putting off, paying off debt. Other things that, you know, within a plan that we're looking at. And so, Lance, I think that this is probably a greater problem than most people realize. Because mm-hmm. not everybody's doing a financial plan or doing a budget and understanding where that money's going. And that's when I think it starts to add up. And it's that, you know, we talked about the snowball effect earlier. I mean, this is a big one. Yeah. Right? Well, and, and again, you know, look, there's there's a lot of a lot of reasons that were given for this financial situation that younger kids are in now. Student loan debt, right? So Dave Ramsey, I was uh, uh, listening yesterday. I was driving around, and Dave Ramsey was on, and he was talking about that he got this phone call. That, you know, he takes phone calls, and this this lady calls in, and she's young. He goes, well, how old are you? And she goes, I'm 29. My husband and I both have advanced degrees. We both work for the government, so we average about $280,000 a year in income. And we have a million dollars in debt, Right. 300,000 of that was student loans for their advanced degrees. 250,000 of it was a mortgage. They had a ton of credit card debt. And it was just the same example that they made good income, but they were living a lifestyle that was far and above what that income would actually support. And it gotten themselves into the point of about to have to file bankruptcy. But this comes back to, to part of the problem, Danny, is that you know, I, I talk to a lot of parents like, oh, well, you know, I have to give my kids a down payment for their house because they won't be able to afford a house if, if I don't put the down payment. Well, there's part of the problem right there. They can't afford it. They can't afford it. If you're having to give them the down payment, they can't afford to save to own the down payment. Help them figure out how to save money to get to the down payment, right? Though that's, and we, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, there's a big difference between being an advisor and being an enabler. And, you know, I've talked to, to numerous parents. They have bought their kids' houses. I know, Danny, you did too. They bought their kids a house, and the kids were supposed to pay rent, and they never pay rent, right? Because of one reason or another. Just can't afford it, can't get around to it, whatever it is. There are a few, a, a, a very few, that actually get paid back. And, yeah. you know, but these, these are families who have set the rules from the get-go. Yeah. Listen, you're going to sign a contract. The house is going to be in my name for these reasons. If you don't pay me rent, you will not live here. You're going to go find another place to live. I love you. I want to help you. Mm -hmm. But here's how we're going to do this. And that's the difference between being an advisor and being an enabler. And that's that's the important lesson here is that, you know, we're not telling you not to help your kids. As Danny said, you know, he's sure that at some point he's going to have to help his kids. I am. I don't help my kids without there being some type of remuneration. Right. They all have to buy their own cars when they turn 16. I foot some of the note for them, but they have to pay the car note and they have to pay their insurance. And I may pick up a little bit of the car note just on the side. They really don't know what their car payment is, more or less. But so I help them behind the scenes, but they know they have an obligation and responsibility. And I'm sure at some point they're going to have some financial situation that I'm going to have to help them with. But there will be ties to that that assistance. I don't mind assisting my kids, but I don't want to enable them to continue to make bad decisions. And that's the that's the thing you have to think about is that are you helping are you truly helping your kids by enabling them? 
because what we find out from a lot of these studies when we read them is that the kids have a consistent run of bad luck. There's, there's just one problem after another, and it's just bad luck after, is it, but is it really bad luck or is it bad behaviors? And what we find is when we start looking at this, there's bad behavior that continues to result in these bad outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the sometimes some tough love is some of the best things that you can do, especially for your own financial and uh, and probably mental health. I had a roommate after college for a bit. My wife and I were married. Buddy that I lived with in college fell on really hard times, and he he had a dream that he was pursuing, trying to build a company up, but wasn't working as hard as I probably thought he should. Right, and he was waiting tables on the side, but he would come home all the time, and say, "Oh well, they they didn't need me today." And I thought, man, listen, here's here's the deal. You know, certain rules you have to follow, certain things you have to do. Wasn't doing those things, so I kicked him out. And about a year later, he called me and said, man, Danny, this was the best thing that ever happened was you kicking me out. Guy's killing it now, making several hundred thousand dollars a year, doing great. But he needed some tough love, and nobody else was doing it because everybody was enabling him, and myself included. Mm-hmm. And so I learned a valuable lesson with that. But I think that you know we can probably put that into anything. Now, granted, my interest in him... I like the guy. He's a good dude. But you know, my kids are going to be a little bit different, right? right. You, you have much more of a vested interest. But the point being is that I think some tough love along the way and, and maybe saying, hey, I can't continue to enable you. I love you. I want to support you. I want to help you. Here's how I'm going to do it. But it's not going to be financially anymore. I think that's going to be a big, big part that's going to help your family and help them learn some of that responsibility, stand on their own two feet, make sure they're, they're forging their own path. And one that, you know, because listen, if you go through all your money, are you going to go live with them? Yeah, probably not. Well, you certainly don't. And that was the point yesterday is, is that you can bankrupt yourself helping your children, but then you become a burden on your children at some point because they're going to have to wind up taking care of you at some point down the road. And that's not what you want for your children either, right? Yeah. We, don't, we, we shouldn't want our children to be having to take care of us in our old age because we financially bankrupted ourselves early on trying to help them. It's just a bad outcome all the way around. So part of this is not just having to give tough love to your children to make them grow up and be more responsible. That's a good thing. But it's also making sure that you don't become a burden on them later in life when they're trying to raise their family and have their issues. (laughs) They're going to have to deal with their kids. (laughs) So good behaviors passed down. Passed down good behaviors. All right, that wraps up the show today. Danny, thank you so much, as always, for coming in. Uh, Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. And, of course, we'll be back here tomorrow uh, with Michael Leibowitz to talk all about the inflation data that comes out this morning and what that means for the Federal Reserve's next moves and for the market. So that'll be tomorrow morning right here on The Real Investment Show. Have a great day. See you then. Realinvestmentadvice.com. <laughs>